Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Seb Stafford-Bloor of Football Three Six Five and by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Here's a theory. The Champions League gives Spurs a break. A win against Red Star Belgrade settles the nerves and breeds much-needed confidence. Plausible. But here's an alternative. They lose. They're all but out. The blame game really starts with a trip to Anfield to come. This struggle more than a blip, Seb? Oh, for sure, for sure. The, um, the bottom's fallen out of it. I mean, the, the trouble with the Red Star game is that um, the Bayern Munich match before was supposed to be the break. That was supposed to be the enlivening experience that, uh, that kick-started the, the Premier League form. Didn't really work out like that that night either. I don't think the opposition matters. I think this is a, um, an internalised struggle. It's not about who's in front of Tottenham. It's just about the old system's not quite working the reliable points of the formation becoming a little bit fragile. The bigger overarching issue is Pochettino, of course. Do you think Pochettino has got his heart in it? No, I don't think that Pochettino's got his heart in it. I think that his race has run as Tottenham manager, to be perfectly honest. That's not to say he's not a good coach. He's a very, very good coach, Pochettino, but sooner or later... Your time is done. And I, I just feel that for him, in his own mind, he hasn't got the energy to reinvent this Spurs squad because that's what it needs. It needs an absolute dramatic transformation. And I don't know if he wants to be the person to do it. There's too much wrong with the team at the moment, with the mentality of the side. Too many of the players have had run-ins with him. You look at the back four. Sergio Aurier, ostracised, is currently playing. Vertonghen spent the first couple of weeks in the stands for some reason. Maybe Seb knows something I don't. Alderweireld wanted to leave, ended up almost being forced to stay on a, on a contract renewal. And Danny Rose was on his way out not that long ago and now he's first choice. That's just the back four. We could go through other players within the squad. So it's not a great environment at the moment. This has lasted. This isn't a blip. I'll chuck a couple of stats out. Your last 21 games in all competitions, five wins. Three clean sheets in 21 games, minus eight goal difference across 21 games. This isn't a bad run of form. This is a sustained poor patch. So what does that tell us about the club as well as the team? <sighs> They're behind schedule. I, mean, I think um, Adrian hit on a really important point there, and it was pushing his energy, because this team does need to be um, packed away and rebuilt. And those statistics tell you that the disintegration has, unfortunately for Tottenham, it hasn't just hit one player, it's hit entire departments of that team simultaneously. Now, back in pre-season, we talked about sort of the, the ostracisation of players like Serge Aurier, Toby Alderweireld, 
Danny Rose was left at home during the preseason tour so that he could fix a move. And Jan Vertonghen, like these players needed to be replaced. You know, they if you if you watch these players, there are there are defects in, in very obvious defects in someone like Serge Aurier. But if you watch Vertonghen and Alderweireld as a unit and as individuals, they are miles away from what they were. They're getting and to older. Prepare, the Pochettino, he recognised that. He was right. It out. He was right. The problem is, is that he is entitled to the opportunity to rebuild his side. However, as a fan, as a writer, whatever, if you commit to that project, it's got to be wholehearted because that project has to be backed by a lot of money, a lot of time, and he has to go back to where he was when he first joined the club, which involved a lot of purging of egos, a lot of political unrest which we, he had to quell and which he had to stand tall against, and a lot of suffering, actually, because Tottenham for six months were not a good side. They, they had moments and they showed promise, but they were in, in, ineffective and inefficient and they had bad days. They had games where they got points which they didn't deserve. If you're going to commit to that now, he has to, he has to, to reach a point in his mind where he thinks, right, I'm not just here for six months until Real Madrid, Man United, whoever, um, pick up the phone. It's a, this is my club and this is what I want to do. He's entitled to that decision. He's not entitled to that if he, is, if he isn't committed to it, if that makes sense. Um, and that's, that's the only question that matters at Spurs at the moment. Not January, not transfers, not fullbacks, not centre-halves, not midfields, not forwards. It is, does the manager still want to be that? And after that, everything else follows. Hasn't he answered that question himself? Like, I mean, he's hinted so many times. He's, he's said the words out loud in terms of my next project and looking elsewhere, hasn't he? I, I can't quote him verbatim here and now. But we've all heard those quotes. And, and I think that was mm. the beginning of the well, He's end. certainly challenged politically the orthodoxy of the football club, hasn't he? I.e. Daniel Levy. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I would say... Um, Pochettino contradicts himself a lot mm. in, in press conferences. Whether that's a second language problem, I don't know. Mm. But he can go from talking about, um, just, just over the last 10 days, for instance, he's, he's talked about the need for new players and how important January is going to be. And then three or four days ago, he was asked the same question about what Spurs intend to do once the, the winter transfer window opens. And then he's dead set against it again. Then he has an ideological um, problem with buying players in the middle of the season. And you can't, it can't be both. And so trying to read what he intends to do from what he says publicly is kind of futile. Um, maddening from a supporter's perspective because you just want him to commit one way or the other. But he is a, he is a little bit of a flip-flopper. So it's, it's very hard to answer that question. Yeah. You've been in enough dressing rooms to understand that they're really febrile places, are you? Oh, yes. When does the tipping point get reached internally? When do players start almost forming little cliques or coming to themselves and thinking... We don't fancy this guy. Either. Yeah, well, it's difficult. Each situation is unique, I think. It's difficult to, to, to say one um, exact thing. I would say that you've got to have belief in the manager. And when, the, when one or two of the main individuals lose belief and trust in the manager, i.e. trust that his heart is in it, trust that he is the right man to take them forward, then you've got a problem. That's when factions start to build and when you get clicks, you get the, those that are with the gaffer, those that aren't with the gaffer. I mean, how often do you see it where you have a situation like this where Spurs visibly in their performance levels? So I'm looking at it uh, neutrally um, from a tactical point of view. I'm looking neutrally. at Spurs. <laughs> oh, I am, I am. And uh, in what I do, I have to. And I'm seeing a team that is not performing anywhere near to the same standards they were. And a lot of that is down to um, their mental application. We saw that at Brian. 
goodness me. Yeah. I mean, that was that was a performance that gets managers sacked. It really was. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I just feel that the players will turn quite quickly. And once, once that, that change in mindset happens, when the manager loses full control over the main character in the dressing room, there's only one outcome. Because you can't get rid of a whole batch of players. I mean, you can, but it's very expensive and time-consuming. It's always the manager that goes. But you can have... You, you will have players being whispered to by their agents. Yeah. You know. They're obviously attractive players within that group. You know, people concentrate on Kane. But what about Son, for instance? 27, a huge star in Asia with all the commercial advantages that that gives you. Yeah. He's playing exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. I thought that cameo when he, when he sort of put his bib over his head when Watford scored on Saturday just summed up a guy thinking, what am I doing here? Showed the full range of his English as well, if you lip read him. Well, I, I think the problem is, I, I, actually, there's a, there was a really good Rory Smith column uh, a couple of months ago about how odd it is that he is someone that isn't connected with these moves. Um, I think part of the problem is that um, it would take an awful lot of money. Um, he's protected by a few contract years. Um, he's not um, about to... Uh, he's not due an extension yet, but he, um, it would take a serious, serious bid um, to, to get him out of Spurs. And I think if you... I, it seems like the tendency in the market now is to is when you see a 27 year old player, unless they are truly a star of the game, um, which you could probably argue Son is, but if they are legitimately in the kind of the hazard class, um, teams are going to look younger. They want to look at the sort of the at the Jao Felix end of the market rather than the 27 year old. You know, and you're thinking also with someone like Son, right? How many miles does he have in his clock? I mean, uh, if you if you tally up his statistics in terms of games played distance travelled because don't forget he is going back to Asia going across time zones he is his schedule is relentless and so maybe you're looking at him and thinking right is he going to uh, his legs going to get heavy at 29 30 do I want to pay 120 million pounds for him probably not Mm. well let's look at the immediate challenge Red Star Belgrade Mm. when you look at that it looks on paper to be the simplest or a simple task although Red Star is second in the group do you think they've got enough about them to do what they did last season? In other words, get over from a bad start in the qualifying rounds. It's hard to say anything too positive about Spurs because they've they've been well beaten by Brighton and were very, very fortunate to get a draw at home to Watford. And their home form has, by and large, been, been atrocious. So Red Star will definitely fancy it. Of course they're capable. These aren't poor players all of a sudden. But what you've seen down the years, we saw it with Chelsea. Mm. You've seen very good groups of players that, that are underperforming because of the manager, because of the environment that they're working in at that point. Suddenly when there's a change, they, they become good again. And, and that can be the case for Spurs. It could even be a, 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 the case on a game-by-game basis, but over a period of a, of a season, Spurs have got, have got no chance at the moment, I don't think, of... of Certainly matching recent seasons in terms of their points tallies. Um, it's a dangerous game for them, I think. Red Star score goals home and away. Um, the only away game they haven't scored in, or the only game they haven't scored in in the Champions League this season, and remember they've been through the qualifiers, was away to Bayern Munich, 3-0. Um, so no, I think they'll, they'll really fancy this game. Spurs will be nervous again, I'm sure, and uh, be fascinating to see how they respond. Mm. Do you think that nervousness will be transmitted or even amplified by the crowd? Absolutely. It's always been a little bit like that at Tottenham, um, going back sort of, you know, many, many decades. I don't know whether it's quite 
anxiety or whether there's a little bit of resignation because the patterns within these games are becoming very similar. Um, Bayern Munich's a little bit of an outlier. You don't get many 7-2 defeats on your own ground, thankfully. Um, but I think... Um, I think it's a kind of it's a it's not a fear of underperformance at the moment because I think everyone's accepted that um, it is going to be a little bit ropey for a while. I think it's a fear of embarrassment. You can kind of rationalise by Munich because they're a good side, they're very talented. Don't really want to lose at home to Red Star, um, with all due respect to them, because you know they hinge around a player like Marco Marine who really wasn't what he was supposed to be and is a kind of a, a bit of an afterthought in European football. Having gone from um, knowing exactly what you would get at White Hart Lane, old White Hart Lane, in terms of the tone of the performance, now, goodness knows, you don't know, I don't know what I'm going to see next tomorrow night. And uh, They're not rookies either, are they? They're not rookies. They've played a lot of games. Well, they beat Liverpool last season. I mean, yeah. that's largely the same team that did that. I know it's on their own ground, mm. um, but they're not, a, um, they're not a joke team, and no one should think that, irrespective of their reputation. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, uh, uh, people should be anxious, absolutely. Mm. You mentioned the Watford game there, Adrian. VAR, another shambles there with the penalty that, for Watford, which should have been given, I think, by common consent. You had problems at Leicester with, with Burnley manager Sean Dyche saying quite rightly, well, why, if you've got these pitch-side monitors, use them. And then, of course, we had the Liverpool incident against Manchester United. Where are we going with VAR? We're going to a point where I think that Mike Riley and the team over at Stockley Park are going to have to review their policy yeah. because it's unpopular. And if it's unpopular, it doesn't reflect well on the league. And if the Premier League are not happy with the policy because it's painting them in a bad light because they become a laughing stock, then it will change. I'm reading reports that the clubs are very happy and that, and that the league are happy. If public opinion becomes so strong, and I think that that is really growing stronger and stronger each week, then, then I think they need to look at it. Personally, obviously, I agree that the pitch side monitors should be used, but if they are so determined for um, referees not to use them, then I think they should scrap the bar. That's my view. Just scrap this high bar nonsense, because that's what's causing problems. Mm. And just say, we're going to put a second pair of eyes on this, because this person has the best views, the best views you can possibly get. Okay, they're not on the pitch. They can watch it in slow motion, full speed, every angle possible. We're going to put the decision in this person's court. Is it a foul? Isn't it a foul? Simple. Not, is it enough of a foul? Yeah. Because that makes it subjective. And I think that that is the, the whole point of it. Football is subjective. Loads of decisions are. So let's just clean it up and say, VAR guy, what's your take? We'll go from there. Do you know what it makes me think, Adrian? It's like when, when you see these, these penalty decisions, which logically you watch as a fan, you think, that looks like a penalty. It's instinct, isn't it? It's instinct. We've been watching the game for a very long time. So when it's not given, it makes me feel, and this is a bit conspiratorial, it makes me feel like it's almost a shill for refereeing vanity. Mm. It's like a, no, that's a mistake. And, and sat behind that screen is not a technical advisor. It is a qualified Premier League experienced referee who is, like, like Adrian said, capable of making the decision. Um, is and, he protecting his mate? I don't know, if it feels a little bit like that. And I, I don't know, that might be me reacting to kind of some of the refereeing voices we've had in the media, who a couple of them always seem to land on the side of the guy that's made the decision, which I find quite annoying because it's kind of, well, it's not really your job just to say, I can understand why, you know, Dave official made that call. It's not, it's not the... When, you went the on the same course as me at yeah. Stockley Park pre-season and they said to us that 
a lot of the reviews would be based on the dialogue that the referee has with them. Yeah. So the referee is being effectively asked to commentate on their own decision-making process. So, and I think that's garbage. When, when we have no you know, no ear to that conversation, then it's going to cause the, these, mm. these problems game in, game out. Uh, because if a referee, for instance, says on that Watford penalty, it was a Descartes, Stonewall pen, wasn't it? A- mm. Anyone that, that watches that thinks that's a penalty. If the referee, and I don't know, we, none of us know what he said. If the referee said, I've seen contact there, he slid in, the leg is high, but I don't think it's enough for a penalty then that is the criteria that they base their whole judgment on, mm. which I just think it makes it far too confusing. Let's just say, this is a contentious call. VAR, it's down to you. Mm. We're in the same way. And communicate it, sorry. No, and communicate it in the way that they do in rugby. And then we can hear it, because there isn't so much of a, of a, of a complicated dialogue. It, it, it's too messy at the moment. I think that the contradiction at its heart, Mike, is that, OK, so take this weekend that's just passed, we had the Conor Hurahan goal, which was disallowed for Villa, and the Delafeo incident, which, which Adrian has um, referenced. On the one hand, very obviously a penalty at White Hart Lane. On the other, we've gone with a fine-tooth comb back through a move, and we have very pedantically, in my opinion, uh, outlawed a goal. Just, and you can't... The, the contrast between those decisions, the mentality behind them, which is the kind of the high bar on the one hand and the, the pedantry on the other... Mm you have to find a uniform level there because it's just too antagonistic yeah. as a supporter because it's just, it doesn't matter what you, how you present it technically, it doesn't make sense to people that have been watching the game. It just doesn't. Logically, it doesn't make sense and you, you have to change that. Mm. Do you agree with Jurgen Klopp yesterday where he saw you know, Martin Atkinson you know, saw a challenge, which I thought was probably a free kick, yeah. thought, well, that's OK, VAR will deal with that. Mm-hmm. Then VAR thought, well, we can't go against our, our official. So it's almost this catch-22 that's developed. He's got a point. He's definitely got a point, Jurgen Klopp, there. Do I believe that Martin Atkinson chose not to make that decision because he knew it would come back to it? No, I don't. I just think that in the heat of the moment, it's one of those, one of many debatable decisions that you see in a game, what are there, 30 in a game, where the referee could blow up Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Personally, on that one, the Manchester United, I, I wouldn't want to see a goal, a little bit like the one at Villa, I wouldn't want to see a, a really good goal cancelled out for maybe foul on the halfway line. Mm. Personally, I think they came to the right conclusion on that one, but, but <laughs> it's, yeah, it, it is not working. And I do think that, that the Premier League and, and the referees chief, Mike Riley, need to review their policy because... It's unpopular among the fan base. And the fans, surely, surely they're the most important people here. They don't like it. And it's, it's, feelings are growing so strong now that there might come a point where everybody wants to scrap VAR. And I think that would be a crying shame because I still believe in VAR if it's done properly. Yeah. Let's get back to football, shall we? <laughs> uh, Liverpool, had that performance at Old Trafford been coming? There were signs of it in the Leicester game before the international break, which they were very, very fortunate to win. Um, I was still a little bit shocked, though. I was shocked by the tone of it and by the way they started because um, Manchester United are a very fragile side at the moment. Um, you know, they were coming off the back of their, their defeat to Newcastle and that was the perfect chance for, for, for Liverpool to come into Old Trafford and, and behave like a European champion and, and bully them and um, you know, remind them of how big their task was. As it was, they kind of sat off and let them play their way into the game, which I... I don't know, it felt, it felt voluntary. So I don't know if that's, a, that's something that's 
been inevitable. It just it felt by design, which is slightly more confusing, I guess. Maybe Adrian's better <laughs> to answer that. <laughs> I never thought it was a peculiar performance from yeah. Liverpool. Yeah, really passive. They weren't themselves. They haven't been great, I guess, all season. They haven't been at their rip-roaring best, have they, Liverpool? Um, but against Leicester, even though they were fortunate to win, you know, there's more energy there. They'd only conceded, I think, two shots to, yeah. to a very good Leicester side, so they were pretty solid. Um, against Manchester United, yeah, they played like a team low on confidence, which was which was bizarre, really. Yeah. Um, I think on this particular game, I think we should maybe credit Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for trying something different and for it paying off, rather than saying Liverpool are suddenly in all sorts of trouble because I don't believe they are. No, no. And if you look at that Liverpool performance, one notable absentee, Mo Salah, does that actually sum up how important the retention of that front three is going to be as the season progresses? I think so because what was interesting was um, Klopp essentially made two changes there. So he lost Salah to injury, brings in Divock Origi. <clears throat> but he changes Mane from left to right. And it, it was interesting to note the effect on Firmino. Because Firmino is so, I think he's their most important attacking player. He's not their best attacking player, but when he doesn't, when he can't find the rhythm, when he doesn't have those little understandings and that chemistry, um, his effect drops really dramatically. And he was, he was anonymous yesterday. Um, so yeah, you, it, I, I don't think that's it's necessarily about um, Origi or even the personnel around him. It's just if you disrupt the understandings, then it becomes a huge problem. I think. I just thought it was more of a more of a mindset problem. I think they were just a bit edgy, which is hard for us to understand. But sometimes you just come into a game and you don't feel right. It might have been as simple as this. Manchester United rock up in a formation they weren't expecting with these wide split forwards. The fullbacks are suddenly thinking, what do we do here? Do we go forward as we normally do? Or do we have to stay calm? Midfielders are suddenly asking questions. Who do I pick up? Was, yeah. This wasn't supposed to happen. And, and I think it took them a half. Liverpool just to, to come to grips with it and it disrupted the fluency of their game. They didn't they, they were taking extra touches. They weren't playing with that chemistry, that, that, that flow that they usually do. And and gradually it came back and they and they pushed United further and further back, didn't they? And, and in the end they probably got a deserved equaliser. Um, but no, look, you're always gonna miss Salah. I mean Salah or Origi. I mean, there's no competition. I don't think Origi's a bad player, it's just no. it's just a it's a levels issue, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I suppose one of the things that that second half performance did do was highlight players who haven't had an impact, you know, for a while. Lalana scoring the equaliser, Oxley Chamberlain came in and, and energised the team, and you had Naby Keita coming in. Little cameo performance, but that's probably better than they've had so far. What do you think about the strength in depth of Liverpool, given that they're probably going to have to rotate a bit? against Genk in the uh, Champions League? Half and half, Mike. I mean, I'm encouraged by what I saw yesterday. Like, I like the idea of having someone like Adam Lallana to come off the bench because mm. he came on for Jordan Henson and Jordan Henson doesn't make that run to the back post. He, he doesn't. He's not that kind of footballer. Um, I'm still worried that they don't have cover for some really important players. We covered Salah, but if they lose Van Dijk, that's a very different looking defence. Um, it's one that teams will think they can get at if they lose either fullback, because I think like one of the, the keys to, to you know to them finding equaliser yesterday was the pressure exerted by the fullbacks. You take one of those players, either one out of the side, you've got a little bit of a problem. So it's still really why I look at a team like Man City. Um, and you know tomorrow, yes, against again, you, 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 there's going to be a bit of rotation, but you it'll be interesting to note the drop off there between what you expect of of the Liverpool standard and what you will likely get once you start interfering with these these pivotal these pivotal 
pivotable, pivotal <laughs> players. It's Monday morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, let's look at Manchester United, okay. uh, Adrian. Um, did that performance buy Oli Gunnar Solskjaer some time? Well, it should do, really, I guess, because he, he tried something new. Um, I don't expect Man United to, to make a change imminently. Um, obviously, we're dependent on results, but, but yeah, I didn't, didn't feel like he was one game away from the from the sack necessarily. I'm pleased he tried something new. He, he tried something that I actually wrote a piece on not so long ago in regards to Daniel James, using him in a more central role. We saw that at Swansea in the championship and he was excellent there. Give him a freer role and he can add energy and pace in different parts of the pitch. And I think that's what happened in this game. And it, it shocked Liverpool. I mean, we saw it for the goal. Um, fantastic assist, wasn't it? Um, so, so give him credit for that. The problem for me this season tactically has been the number 10 position in this 4-2-3-1 that he seems to have been married to. I don't know why he's so married to it, because to me he hasn't got a 10 in good form. Simple as that. Mm. He's tried Lingard, very poor this season. Not really a 10 either, yeah, no. in my mind. He's tried one matter, hasn't been the, the one matter of old, he's barely had a shot from that position. And he, in this game, he tried uh, Pereira, who, who he tried also on the first game of the season against Chelsea. Probably Pereira's been the best of the three, but is he really, is he really worthy of that, of that key role in the Manchester United team? Not in my opinion. So I think he needs to revamp the system, go with two up top, because again, Rashford isn't a, a cast iron centre forward, is he? He's, he, mm. he's, he's a good forward. Um, I would go with Rashford, uh, two of three, Rashford, Martial or James, as part of a really mobile, energetic front two. Behind them, you could go with four, four at the back or a 5-3-2, something like that. I just think that tactically he's been too stubborn and uh, it was great to see him change it. Yeah, with Rashford, he made the point about Rashford that he's a scorer of great goals but not a great goal scorer yet. Do you agree with that? Summary. Well, not really, because uh, I remember Gordon Strachan once saying that about Darren Huckabee a <laughs> time ago, and that's just... He scored some great just, goals. He did score some great goals, but I just feel like that's a slightly unfair. <laughs> the way I put it is, I don't think Marcus Rashford is a centre-forward. I think he's a wide forward, and I think some of the things he did yesterday really showed what he's good at. Like if you put him... Uh, obviously, he's a great counter-attacking player. He's a good technical footballer, but he's also brilliant in wide areas. Like he's one of the few players that... I've unsettled Virgil van Dijk this season in that moment in the first half where he brushed him off and cut him aside. It's difficult. I, I also feel like Marcus Rashford, the human being, suffers from the pressures of having to play in the centre of that attack and be, at his age, this kind of saviour with all the baggage that goes with being a homegrown player, but also um, being expected to follow um, a pretty daunting list of forwards. Like if you think about Manchester United, not even just number nine, any kind of forward, you think about you know, Dwight York, Van Nistelrooy, Cantona, Cole. I mean, he's not ever going to be that kind of player. He may be a very good player, but he's not ever going to fit that sort of mould. Um, so I'd be a fan of, um, as Adrian has actually just said, mm. of kind of splitting the burden up mm. um, and splitting the responsibilities and putting a Martial in there because he is the guy you bought for £16 million. Um, and also, you know, he's slightly more experienced. He's a bit more, you know, he's played more than one country. He's not from Manchester. He's a, he's a more rounded player and he's had more experience in his lifetime. I, I just I prefer that. Yeah, I think they have to share the, share the, the load up top. Yeah. Because, look, it just makes the decision to, to get rid of Lukaku and not replace him look, look madder by the, by the mm. day. Whether you like rate Lukaku or not, 
Put them, put them, play them each 38 games a season in the centre-forward position. I'm telling you now, Lukaku will always score more goals than Rashford. And so, so, so they've gone backwards in that department. The, the criticism has clearly irked the hierarchy at the club. Yeah. You know, there's been a, a briefing campaign going on, and let's be honest. Yeah. yeah, we're going to get at least six players in. Oh, by the way, we looked at 804 right-backs. Well, that's probably about 800 too many, mate, you know? Yeah. Um, that tells you that it's still a club that doesn't really know what is go- where it's no, going. No, look, for a huge institution, you know, multi-billion pound uh, club, it's a bit Mickey Mouse, isn't it, in terms of the football structure? Mm. It really is. This director of football role, in the past we may have scoffed at it, but I do think it's an essential role these days, having someone with really real good football intelligence, football background, to be that buffer, to, 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 to look after recruitment. Because managers come and go so frequently, you need a constant in there. Van der Sar would make and, and a lot of sense, not, I, I don't really get why they haven't appointed anyone, but, but certainly gone after Van der Sar aggressively, because Van der Sar himself has come out and said, of course I'm interested, it's Manchester United. Van der Sar's role at Ajax has been a little bit more financial and commercial, mm. so maybe there's a, a question of, does he overlap with some of the imperatives that we must not mention that exist at Man United. Yeah, yeah. Is he a bit too close to um, what, their, but, what their aims are? I don't know. But they're, I'm, I'm they're not recruiting him for his expertise on numbers. No, but I mean in terms of like the, not the conflict of interest, but like a kind of, mm. I, I have no doubt he'd be very good at the mm. job. It's just, do they, do they want someone of that profile in, in, in yeah. position? I, I don't know. I, it's hard I to think. Know. I think they need that person ASAP. Oh, I agree. And uh, it's bonkers in my opinion that they haven't. That said... For all of the criticism Manchester United have had of their recruitment strategy, I actually think over the last couple of years they've been better. You, you wouldn't say that the, too many of their more recent signings have been flops. You'd probably go back to Fred and Dallow and obviously Alexis Sanchez as, as the disasters. The, the last few have been OK. Yeah. yeah. saw a stat this morning coming in where Manchester City have spent £700 million in the last three and a half years on players. Yet you still got Pep Guardiola saying we're not ready to win the Champions League. <laughs> uh, does white ma- white man speak with forked tongue on that one? He says a lot of stuff, doesn't he? Yeah. He does say a lot of stuff. Uh, no, I don't think uh, if Manchester City, there's no real excuse for Man City not winning the Champions League. Um, that's him c- trying to create one, and uh, and that's uh, his sort of look how clever I am at finding solutions to problems of my own making. Like whatever, like you know, just. Um, I think Man City should have won the Champions League by now. I think they should have. I think last season, VR, controversy aside, um, I think that was a very handy distraction for quite a bad failure. That was there to be won. I think Man City go past Ajax. I think they beat the, 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 the Liverpool performance that they gave in the, in the Champions League final. Yeah. Uh, huge missed opportunity. Um, and he's running out of time. Like he's, he's not someone that's going to spend 10 years at a football club. Um, so... It's going to be this year, next year, possibly the year after, or not at all. So it has to has to happen. Yeah. What about the learning culture at City? I thought it was very interesting listening to Jesus talk on Saturday about you know, learning from Sergio Aguero, who obviously is a, a natural rival. Uh, was that that again a bit more PR flannel? I don't know. No, I think it's nice to hear. Really, I mean, every player is ambitious for themselves, aren't they? But You'd be a fool not to well, not to want to learn off, off teammates that are better than you yeah. in certain situations. I mean, that's the only real justification for Phil Foden at the moment sticking around and not pushing 
you know, intently for a loan move. The fact that he is learning every single day mm. from De Bruyne, from David Silva, from Bernardo Silva. Um, but again, for, for him, even though he got some game time at the weekend, just a few seconds, on a day when two central midfielders play centre-half, Phil Foden still doesn't start a Premier League game. I mean, he has, he has to go on loan from January, in my opinion. He's not 16, 17 anymore, he's 19. And we're seeing 19-year-olds tear it up, aren't we, in the Champions League, at international level, in the Premier League. And he's good enough to do it, but he's being held back. So, so I think but until David Silva um, steps aside at the end of the season, Phil Foden needs, needs to get out there. He's done enough learning up close to these greats. He needs to learn on the job now for the next six months. Mm. He's still a lovely footballer, though, isn't he, David Silva? Oh, brilliant, even now. Well, I, I think it was, uh, it's been 10 years since he's been here. I don't know, there's been a little bit of a decline athletically, but he's still just such a... He's one of the, he's one of the best footballers I've ever watched live. I mean, I know, you know he's still wonderfully elegant on television, but just to, to, to sit in the ground and watch him do little things like control the ball, uh, see the field before he receives a pass, stuff like that. It's been absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Mm. I suppose, in a way, they're, they're also... Um, penalised to a degree by the fact that they're in a pretty unsexy <laughs> Champions League group, aren't they? Yeah, to say the least. They've got Atalanta um, this week. Um, you've got Pasalic playing against them. You know, still a Chelsea player. Who? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> two two years. Uh, sorry, two two transfer. Sorry, I'll get it right in a second. Two contract extensions. He's 24 years old. Still a Chelsea player. Is he a relic of the old regime? Yeah, yeah, he is. He's a, he's one of many, isn't he? That one of many Chelsea players. None of us have ever heard of. We're working the game. Well, he is a Croatian international. <laughs> for goodness sake. Well, okay, never heard of. But I, look, I, could, I couldn't hand on heart. I couldn't tell you what he looked like. I, I genuinely couldn't. Uh, and. and being, you know, working in football is my job, so so that goes to show how pointless his existence as a Chelsea player is. Yeah, no, I, I don't like that, and thankfully, I think the system is is going to change, isn't it? So um, so we'll have to wait and see what happens moving forwards. But yeah, it's not a sexy group at all for City, but but that should be a huge advantage because it allows them to to really put their A team out in the Premier League games and for them to put the put a Europa League side out in midweek and still top the group. So that's something Liverpool don't have the, you know, the, the cushion to do, especially after losing to Napoli. So um, advantage City on that score for sure. Yeah. You know, you were at Chelsea at the weekend, Seb. Um, it does seem that there's complete buy-in to the principle of what they're trying to do now. Absolutely. I mean, it's something I wrote about actually is that um, Chelsea teams of the past haven't had the benefit of an awful lot of patience because the, the mentality has been, well, if something doesn't work, we're going to rip it up at season's end and start again. That's kind of manifested in a kind of, in a, I don't want to use the word like entitlement, but I, I don't have the vocabulary to use another one, <laughs> that within the crowd. But what I, what I noticed on Saturday was that it was quite a frustrating game that they, they had to wait until the, I think, the 73rd minute to get their goal. Um, they didn't play particularly well, and yet all those signs of irritation that you usually associate with Stamford Bridge weren't there. Um, and there were some, some wonderful performances. I thought, um, even though um, Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham were quiet, I thought Callum Hudson had always just brilliant. Mm. And I, it's a little bit of a, a tenuous um, point to make, and it's very hard to prove, but it feels as if that kind of player can't grow in an environment which isn't like this, because he's so expressive and he... He's imaginative and he thinks about what he's going to do and, and he, he doesn't get dispirited by um, you know, the frustrations of a game. Um, and that's quite rare in someone that's still only 18 years old. And you think, 
this is this is the this is one of the subliminal benefits of having a benevolent atmosphere is that young players don't feel like they're one bad pass away from the bench or from having the crowd in their back or actually you played the game like what is it, it, it i mean is this is this just supported nonsense that i'm i'm going with or is it is that a real thing no it's definitely a real yeah. thing absolutely it's a real thing and and certain managers you know are reluctant to use young players and young players aren't daft they know that that manager is maybe reluctant that maybe he's been forced or pressured into giving you a game and then when you make a mistake then you know that that's going to be amplified whereas it at Chelsea as you've rightly pointed out it's the exact opposite and you Frank Lampard is he's not going to be soft on the kids he'll push them and drive them but you know he's not going to bury they, these kids know that they're not going to get buried by Lampard or dropped just like that um, they're going to be given chances and, and I do think you make a great point about the supporters as well you need the supporters to be behind you but in general I do feel that that fans are very supportive of, of young, I'd agree. Of young yeah, players absolutely, absolutely. up and down yeah. the land, even if the managers <laughs> aren't. You're right about Hudson Odoi. I commentated oh, on the game. He, he was he was tremendous and uh, yeah, really excited. I, I feel like I've been underappreciating him all this yeah. time. Like yeah, yeah. I, I saw, like usually that kind of player, that wide forward is very instinctive and quite mechanical. Mm. He is. He's almost a playmaker playing in a wide forward position. It's well, quite unusual. We got Sancho. Yeah. And Hudson Odoi. What about and Raheem Sterling? Why don't you have Sancho mm. and Hudson Odoi in the same Chelsea team? Could you imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's going to get himself a, a move back to the Premier League mm. at some point. I mean, I think it's a bit too rich for Chelsea. Like, honestly, yeah, I, I think I'm not sure they they, they they kind of have that financial primacy anymore. How many teams can afford right, it? Right. Yeah. I mean, and there's going to be a long, long queue for him when, uh, as and when he decides. I think it's to down to two, isn't it? I mean, if, if you're him, if Manchester United don't improve. There's only two teams that he would surely leave Dortmund for, City or Liverpool. Well, Real Madrid, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah in yeah. the Premier League. Oh, I see. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, uh, and it would not surprise me, given how much he's enjoying it over there, that, that he would go to a Real Madrid. Yeah. And I suppose if you're a young player at Chelsea, even though you might be on loan now, so from someone, for instance, like Conor Gallagher, who's ripping it up, yeah. playing for, for uh, Charlton in the, in the Championship, he's probably thinking to himself, I keep making this impact... I've got a chance next season. That's that's where that's the hidden benefit of what's going on. I hope so. I mean, I, I want to hold far until we get to next summer, because I think some of these, someone like Hudson Odoi, is very obviously going to be a Chelsea player for the, for the foreseeable future. Mount too, um, probably Fikir Tomori as well. Don't know about Tammy Abraham, and this is the caveat because when that transfer ban expires, let's see the attitude then. Because is it going to be Frank Lampard dictating? the culture or is it going to be yeah but we've done this like this for so long and it's worked and look at all these league titles and we've won the Champions League and therefore mm. you know we're going to we kind of like being that club that 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 sort of apex predator let's see let's see because um, you know let's let's just see how much has changed when they have the opportunity to do things differently mm. but, but Gallagher by the way Goodbye. is probably doing slightly better the Mount was doing at Derby last year in terms of the goals that he scored. Because Mount had the injury, I suppose. This yeah, is kind of, Mount yeah. was good in the championship, yeah. very good. But but Gallagher's performance levels are at least the equal of what Mount was doing, and, and we've seen his development. So mm. so his future is bright. But he's, unfortunately for him, he's got stiff competition yeah. because Mount yeah. kind of plays the same role. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to Chelsea playing uh, at Ajax oh, yeah. this week. Yeah, good game. Uh, probably the uh, to me the side of the week. Um, what can Chelsea learn from those Dutch principles of development that Ajax as a club embody? <laughs> well, I think they're doing okay, aren't they, Chelsea? In terms of the, 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 
what they're doing with the academy. Mm. The players that they've produced in recent years have been fantastic, as good as the Ajax kids coming through. So there's clearly a lot of great work being done down at Cobham with, with the youth age groups. Um, in terms of, yeah, in terms of first team level, I suppose Ajax are, are a leader. They, they got to a Champions League semi-final, <laughs> almost a final, um, with a Chelsea-esque side last year, didn't they? So, so yeah, they're, they're a great role model for, for a lot of clubs, not just Chelsea, I would, I would imagine. So, so it's identity a little bit. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. a kind of, um, it's a, yeah. what you learn from Ajax is, okay, Chelsea are producing good mm. youth players. Now, the next step is to produce players that are of the required quality, but also have a quite a refined skill set. Yeah. So they, you're not just, you're not breeding players, you're breeding components that slot into your first team. And then obviously you homogenise your youth teams and then you, you you create the sort of the pipeline is what I'm saying. It's, yeah, it's I, I think that's a good point. Uh, but but then I would also, always say that it takes all types. Oh, of course. And, yeah, and Tammy yeah. Abraham wouldn't be a prototype type of striker no. necessarily that Chelsea want to produce or Ajax. No. You, you, yeah, you, you, you sometimes... It's hard. Yeah, it's, it's all theory, isn't yeah, it? But I mean, it's, exactly. uh, it's interesting. But, yeah. but this would be a great game. Really looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah. I suppose financial circumstances as well. The Ajax, you know, they did quite well. They obviously had a couple of big yeah. exits at the... But they kept someone like Donny uh, van der Beek, yeah. who's now been linked with, with Spurs and Manchester United. Uh, in his case, he's always looked to me to be a great potential Premier League player. Do you think he'll be in the Premier League next season? Well, from a selfish point of view, I hope so. I'd love to watch him. I mean, there's another one there. I think uh, that they've kept Hakim Ziyech is amazing, um, mm. given how capable he is. And he's also, I think it's 26. So he would have been at the age to, to follow you know, someone like um, De Ligt, but also Dolberg out the door. Um, I like to think so because you, 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 can, you, can see, you can see someone like Van der Beek um, slotting into so many different teams because he does so many different things very, very well. Um, I thought he was probably, arguably, uh, Ajax's best player in the first leg of that semi-final against Tottenham. He was absolutely brilliant. Um, so it's surprising that he hasn't had a kind of a Real Madrid move or, you know, Barcelona were never going to get him and De Jong. But, you know, why he isn't being integrated somewhere else already? It's a, it, I, I haven't heard an explanation for it, basically, Mike. Mm. Ajax fans are going to be banned from the, the return leg and yeah. there's 2,000 of them already got their air air tickets for um, London. So they're going to go and watch Leighton Orient against uh, uh, an under Brighton under-21 team. Yeah, yeah. absolutely love Fantastic. It's a great, it's a great yeah. tale, yeah. But then, on the other hand, if you look at the absurdity of all these closures and mm. bans, you've got Slava and Slava meant to be playing behind closed doors against Wolves in the Europa League. They've now got a crowd of 21,000 turning up under some spurious, oh, take 10 kids and we'll, we'll let an adult in. There's going to be a lot of kids with beards there, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, I'm glad you've brought this up. It's an absolute scandal and outrage, isn't it, from UEFA, that they can have such a, a loophole in place. I mean, if, it, if you've got a stadium closure, it's closed. It's behind closed doors. That's what it says. You don't have an exception for under-14s. It's, it's absolute... Well, it's just silly. And, and I can't quite believe that it's happening and that they would get away with it. I uh, can't blame Bratislava. They're, they're, they're just doing what... <laughs> they're bending the rules, aren't they? Um, but no, it, it just brings up that point. It renews the point that that stadium closures aren't really that effective. And, and you've, you've certainly got to do it properly if you're going to dish out that kind of punishment. But I think we all... Most of us are now in agreement, surely, that we need to see 
teams punished, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, f- I find it really unfair. It's the, the only the, way. It's yeah, I find it really way. unfair that, let's say, for instance, Yeovil. We, we saw the incident when we were at Haringey Borough. Yeah, well, it's, it, 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 the allegations have been pursued by the police. Yeah. Two people have been... Absolutely. Uh, and, and you want individuals to be punished. But stadium closures, fines, paltry fines, do, don't do anything. With, that's proven now. The only way is points penalties in league competitions yeah. or to, to ex, you know, expulsion out of cup competitions. So it's so harsh on the players and 99% of the good fans. But how else are we going to stop it? Mm. How else? Clubs have got a responsibility. You know, and Bristol City, to their credit, are you know, leading an investigation into allegations about their fans at Luton. Yeah, but, but, but what will happen and that, uh, in an ideal world... And, uh, it's really unfair on, on Lee Johnson and the players. They should get three points docked. Yeah. The, the, because Bristol City fans won't do it again. I mean, if they did, they're absolutely, you know, even bigger idiots than we think. The, but the problem with something like a fine, doesn't matter how big the fine is, because the, 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 the people responsible for the abuse do not pay the fine. You need to be heavy-handed and draconian. And sometimes football needs to realise that there are issues more important than football. And Adrian's right, it is harsh on players and managers and coaches and people who work very hard and would never dream of racially abusing someone and would never condone it and hate the people that do that stuff. At the same time, though, it has to be attacked properly. And it isn't. It mm. just isn't. Like, it's that, that England game in Bulgaria, like, it's one of the worst things I've ever seen. It's heartbreaking. Like, you see someone like Tyron Mings playing brilliant on his England debut, and we're talking about him being having monkey chance directed at him. Mm. It's, it's unforgivable. And, like, it, it just... I, I actually went at the end of that game when Greg Clark talked about when he said, "Oh, you have to take this very seriously." I was like, "They don't. They don't. They don't." I nearly choked on my supper when I heard that. You must be joking. Like it's sort of fines and sort of token stadium closures and get real. Get real. This is a real problem because the jaundiced view, which is probably a realistic view, is that the FA will eventually come down against <laughs> the Haringey Borough players who actually walked off the yeah. pitch. It's happened in now, the past, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now, that, to me, does make, makes no sense whatsoever. No, that can't happen this time around. It, that has happened in the past. Teams have walked off in, in lower league football and then have been fined. It's, it's unbelievable. Individual really. players Individual have. players have been banned for, for lengthy periods for doing the same. It's, it's outrageous. Um, we have to create a situation where the, a player feels able to walk off. If the player's yeah. being racially abused, you must feel able. Yeah. Yeah. Mustn't, mustn't feel compelled to remain on the pitch. That, that's why I thought Saturday was a watershed moment. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, my, my only worry about this is if we do go draconian, and I think that is the only way, the only worry is that you will get saboteurs then, potentially, that, that might you know, sneak into a, into a yeah. stadium under yeah. the guise of being a Bristol City fan, for example, and might support Bristol Rovers. That's you know, a, that, that, that is a very that, sad reality of that. But that is a sad reality, <laughs> yeah, isn't I mean, it? So yeah. it, I don't think that would happen, but there is a possibility. So maybe you have that, you, you know, a, a one strike and then the second time it happens, then you get the points penalty or the expulsion. But we have to get much yeah. tougher. We, all we keep hearing is we need tougher penalties. The only option, as far as I can see, and I've looked, I've thought about this, only option is to kick people out of cup competitions or to dock them points. Yeah. Well, enough is enough. We need to get our own house in order. And that means making the punishment fit the crime. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 